Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Kubernetes Unpacked podcast. My name is Michael Levan. My name is Cristina Deochko. And today we have Leon Cooperman on. He is the CTO of Cast AI, uh, arguably one of my favorite cost and resource optimization tools. Not just saying that because Leon's on, but I actually do use it a fair amount. Uh, and I've implemented it for customers and, and clients and stuff on my consulting business and all that good stuff. And today we are going to be diving into automated cost and resource optimization. And we're also going to be talking about from an engineering perspective, not from a marketing perspective. Don't worry, everybody. Gen AI and how it kind of fits in from a data modeling perspective and training those models and kind of how Cast AI is doing it underneath the hood. Leon, welcome. Thank you so much for being on. Michael, Christina, good to speak to you. Awesome. Love cool. the stuff following you guys closely. Nice. Yeah, we, we always love to hear that. So that's uh, it's, it's a good uh, confidence booster there. <laughs> <laughs> and likewise, I guess it's not only Michael that has been using Cast.ai for uh, quite some time. I do as well and really appreciate the functionality in the tool and uh, often a recommendation when customers ask about the cost optimization and resource optimization tools, uh, Cast.ai yep. often pops up. So um, great to have you here today, Leon. So I, I want to kick this off with the whole idea of automated cost and resource optimization because I think it's so ironic how these two topics are typically split up. Like we see resource optimization and then we see FinOps, but you kind of can't have one without the other, I feel like. Like the whole idea of resource optimization is for better performance and better cost. And if you're doing cost optimization, like you have to be doing resource optimization. You can't just do one or the other, right? Guys, think about how the pendulum swung. Like go back decades, we were all in data centers. Well, maybe you guys are too young, but I was in data centers <laughs> and like racking and stacking stuff. And then I had to beg for every dollar of every server that I'd get. And the, finally the business woke up and said, okay, let's give engineering some freedom. Let's just move them all into the cloud. Let them like innovate. Why was that pendulum? Why did it swing so far? Because money was cheap. So the balance between let's innovate rapidly and like just throw money at the innovation problem was was a prevalent use case. Like people wanted to unlock engineers to do their thing. But now we get into, you know, two years into it, you know, you're we have resource shortages. Like I looked at the cost of a GPU in the gray market. Oh my goodness. Like an A100, like, like it's highway robbery. So like we've swung the other way. People don't have money to spend anymore. Money is expensive. And all of a sudden you have some new shackles in place. And what corporate world is invented is this field of FinOps, which I really appreciate, but it's not a separate thing. The responsible DevOps engineer has to worry about their money too. And, and it has to be a balance between spending the right right amount for resources as well as getting the performance and innovation that you need also right because if you're hamstringing the engineers from using the right resources they're not going to innovate as quickly right yeah and i guess in the in the general situation that is currently in the world that engineers are really getting like pressed uh, pressed on the cost uh, on the cost perspective as well and i remember like for i think last year cncf did release like a report uh, the, where they had like thousands of respondents generally sharing challenges with uh, adopting cloud native technologies and kubernetes specifically and one of the findings that they have discovered was that more that almost 60% i think 60 or 70% of respondents mentioned that cost increase for during the last year has been their huge hugest challenge 
that they uh, were really figuring out ways ways to solve and having the tools that can help you do that efficiently, especially in Kubernetes, I feel like it has been, it has also been a challenge for some time. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of two problems, right? You've got the, the problem of like, how do you adjust all this stuff in real time? But you also have to have the skill set to do it. Like if you go back a few years, like who could do this work comfortably and not bring down systems, right? You have so many dials to tune you have, we don't have enough engineers in the field to do all this work. So this is kind of where our vision comes from. Like, let's get engineers out of the basement, out of the boiler room, stop working on these low level things that are better for computers to do anyway, and get them thinking about harder, more interesting uh, and more innovative problems to solve. You know, you bring up a good point, And this brings me back to the SRE handbook from Google, which is, you know, you should be spending no more than 50% of your time putting out fires, the other 50% or hopefully more, you should be spending on business values, you should be spending on actually creating things for the business that actually make sense and things that from an engineering perspective make sense. Now, from a Kubernetes perspective, we have everything from horizontal pod auto scaling to vertical to quotas to limits to uh, requests. I believe, and I'm I'm, I'm assuming uh, you know y'all think the same thing. I don't think we should be doing that. Like I don't think that engineer should be sitting there setting up limits and requests and quotas and doing this scaling and that scaling. Like that to me is on the putting out a fire piece of everything. Like that should be a repeatable by whatever tool that we don't have to think about it. So you're right. Like when is the last time you set a request and limit on a workload that you got right? Like, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> so like it never happens. No. So that process is faulty. And one of the problems is it's in Git. So like everyone tends to think it's an engineer's responsibility to get the YAML right. I actually don't agree with that. I have a strong opinion there it has to shift right. Like we do a lot of things that shift left for good reason. This thing has to shift right to the runtime. It's like, you don't tell your autoscaler how many nodes you need at any one time through source code, right? Mm -hmm. Like it does the work. Same right. thing with pod workloads. We're actually, guys, I, I, we were just talking about this before, but uh, at KubeCon and uh, Cloud Native, uh, in Chicago, we're going to be announcing a completely automated right-sizing tool that works in conjunction with the rest of the CAS platform. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to give you guys a sneak peek. No one's seen it yet uh, in sure. industry, so we can do that. But the whole idea is, is that we use seasonality analysis to get ahead of requests and limits. Our goal is that we can actually eventually do this without restarting pods. So right okay. now... You need to do a restart. You need, like, you know, like in current stable versions of Kates, you need to do a restart. We're hoping we get to a world where restarts aren't required and we can make these changes in re resources much more frequently without affecting workloads. So that's kind of our vision on that piece of the puzzle. And then, of course, it fits with everything else. Like, you need to have good bin packing, you need to have good node selection, you need to have good price awareness. That's all of the tools that have to come in to, for FinOps to be happy and for an engineer to actually do, get the right job done in cost side. Awesome. Very cool. Yeah. If that's ready on your end, uh, we'd love to hear and see about it for everybody that's listening. Uh, we're going to be looking at stuff from a visual perspective, but we're going to be explaining it to all of you uh, from A to Z. That way you can get a good solid understanding from an auditory perspective, uh, what this whole new feature is.
this is actually our three environments we have a cast. So a, a little bit more than an under. So we have three environments, a prod master, a dev master. Notice there's no QA or UAT system in our environment. And we have a CICD cluster. Uh, you'll also notice that most of our CICD runs on spot instances when it scales up. So you can tell that in our system based on this black versus blue line. Most of the cluster here is running in spot. But let me go into our production environment right now. Uh, so this is kind of a, a seven day view. We can zoom into a 24 hour view. Um, and then what I'll show you is you see this uh, workload optimization is actually, if you've got a cast console, it's not released in your environment yet. Um, it's an, it's an early adopter or beta mode. So if you click on workload optimization, you see a couple of things, right? You, first of all, you see at the top here, eight and eight, just 9% optimization. So, you know, we're very early adopters of this capability too. We're also setting requests and limits in Git, just like everyone else. And you see there's, there's, there's quite a bit of work that we can still do to, to get optimized. But what I want to show you is like, if we look at one of these work lights, like the insights worker, for example, right? Um, what you'll see is, and, uh, uh, or yeah, so this is, this is pretty good. You see a CPU graph and a memory graph, right? So let me walk you through this. You see that our, uh, there's a requested a recommended max P75, P50, and P25. So our algorithm is looking across all of these things. And you can actually see that for memory, why is the memory recommendation line always above the spikes? Christina, you here, there's your trivia question. Why why aren't we why aren't we trying to get lower here close to the P95, for example? Uh, <laughs> I was not prepared. That's all right, you're on the spot. Well, Can you so, okay? I I I need to ask you to repeat the question now. <laughs> yeah. So look, on our CPU recommendation, you see that black line is the CPU recommendation line. Mm, mm. It is not at the top of the range for uh, for what's spiking from CPU. Mm -hmm. So that's okay because in Kubernetes, mm. CPU is a compressible resource. Like other workloads will spike at different times, so you don't have to be at your actual usage all of the time, right? That's the tricky part about setting requests and limits. But for memory, the line is actually pretty far above the spikes. And there's a reason for that. There's a, I just, I just, what would you guys guess to be the intuitive reason for that? I'm assuming requests versus limits. So in memory, it's really important to have quality of service. Like right? what happens when you have a, a request that's lower than a limit in Kubernetes on memory and the node doesn't, is well packed? you're going to get an um kill. There's right. no such thing. There's yeah, no swap true. space in Kubernetes. So yeah. you have a high risk of um kills that are highly disruptive to your workloads. So we recommend for our customers that they're always setting for memory specifically requests equals limits. Right. We don't allow for memory burst on a well-packed node. But the, um, so as a result of that, we have to have requests that are higher than what we would expect memory to ever go to. So you see there's always a buffer kind of here uh, in terms of uh, memories. But on the CPU mm -hmm. side, we're taking a much more aggressive approach to cost savings because we know that we can get below the spikes and still be very healthy from a workload perspective. So that that's just, we can take a look at one more workload just to see um, where the 
where the predictions might occur. You'll notice that the there's a flag here on and off. So what that flag does, and by the way, I'm showing you in ClickOps, but obviously you're gonna do this through Terraform, you're gonna do this through mm-hmm. proper IAC. That flag, that attribute on each workload is whether we automatically adjust those requests and limits for you and at what threshold you want us to take action. So for example, you could say, hey, if there's more than a 5% savings in making this adjustment, go for it. If it's anything less than 5%, I don't want the, I don't want the hassle. You can also set little headroom for yourself like, you know, give me a 10% buffer just in case. You can also set specify at what level you want to set the recommendation at. Do you want it at the P75? Do you want it at the P50 or the P25? Is it worth explaining these these terms for folks or is it pretty obvious? Sure, feel free. Yeah, so the P75 is just the 75th percentile of all the data points in the time series that the value reaches, right? So 75% of the values fit under that number and only 25% peak above that number. And so you have a choice as a end user as to how aggressive you wanna be in that savings. So let's, let's pick another workload here. This is an ML workload and you'll see something very similar. And you see where the actual, like we're right now because it's on, the recommended value is actually equal to the value. And you can see where the recommendation line kind of changes over time and why it changes. Because when you have spiky workloads, your requirements actually change. So setting the same static value doesn't make sense. And you'll notice an interesting thing here. There's some curvature to the recommendation. Kind of looks like a normal sine curve. Why is that? Well, there's seasonality in the workload. And because our system picks up that seasonality, because we know where the peaks and valleys are, we kind of preempt or predict that um, that change in workload temperature. And we can be proactive about it, both from a scale-up perspective, which I think is much more important even than a scale down, because the scale up is what's going to give you your quality of service on on your workloads. Is that kind of making sense? Totally. Yeah. yeah. And then if you look at something that's not really optimized, like, I don't know, we can look at our auto scaler here. You'll see that our actual number is, is, is way up high here and our recommendation value is way down here. So this is all of the waste. This is mm. all of the money that's actually being spent that shouldn't be spent. And, and, and this is a cost optimization company. So you can see like, you know, this is kind of our forte and we still have a lot of work to do in our own system. So imagine what customers have in their environments. And that's so that on the screen of... here. That's the uh, the waste piece there, right? The 70 CPU waste, 134 gigabyte of memory waste, right? That's, yeah, that's yeah. kind of like uh, total, right? Total, um, yeah. the Total waste, yeah. And then like, we actually have this in dollars, like we'll, we'll show this on the screen. If you go into workloads, and I think we were looking at the uh, cluster snapshots, let's just take that as an example. You can go into the efficiency tab here, and it'll give you an interesting, like you can see here in this table, there's like for the time period, we have a $39, $39 of waste just by having the wrong requests and limits set. Mm-hmm. And that takes into account how much we're running on every node lifecycle, whether it's spot, reserved instances, or on-demand. Right. So that's a little bit of a sneak peek for you guys. Very um, cool. And if we have time, there's nice. one other killer feature that we're releasing at KubeCon. We can describe it uh, sure. if it's interesting to you. Absolutely. Yeah, do that. Yeah. 
So have you guys ever noticed when you have like a plan in mind for like the node topology that you want in your clusters and then um, and then the scheduler gets involved and schedules pods randomly to nodes that you didn't expect them to get onto? And so how do you as an engineer deal with that? Well, you have to create more constraints, right? You create node selectors, you create um, uh, affinity, anti-affinity rules. Like you've got all topology spread constraints. You got all this Kubernetes stuff that you do in order to try to get the scheduler to work more like you think it should behave. So that's a really big problem for us. Because remember, we're designing all of those topologies every 15 seconds for our customers' clusters. And when workloads don't land on the nodes that our algorithms want them to land on, mm -hmm. it creates extra churn. Sometimes we have to move those workloads through bin packing. Sometimes we have to create an extra node because there's just not enough space in a well-packed cluster. Mm -hmm. So there's this little extra movement that we want to completely avoid and get rid of. So we have a new feature. I don't know what its name is going to be, but internally we call it a pod pinning feature. And what it does is when your workloads launch and they become unschedulable, a node comes in from our plan. We actually pin the workload to the exact node it needs to land on. We don't let the scheduler mess it up. So we have an ex exact intersection of what we asked for and what we're getting on the other end. So like, I'm really excited about this because it makes all of our algorithms that we've been working so hard on so much more effective the scheduler effectively is not getting in our way any longer. Interesting. Huh, oh, very, very cool. Yeah, and, and I think that's a big implementation detail because managing labels and node selectors across multiple workloads is obviously a major pain, right? Just like setting up requests, limits, quotas across several workloads is a pain. So this this definitely gives us the ability to it's almost like, like I, I always harp on abstraction and I never truly know, like, is it good abstraction? Is it bad abstraction? But this actually abstracts the things away that is incredibly annoying for me to do for workload. So it actually makes sense to get rid of all this. If When we, when we talk to, I don't know about you guys, but when we talk to customers, we come into their environments and they've got all kinds of preconceived notions about what should be separated from what oh, we don't want this workload mixing with this workload because they're noisy neighbors and they, mm. well, why are they noisy neighbors? Like you're separating them at, a, at at the expense of cost without actually getting to the root cause of their interference with one another. If you just set your resources quotas um, limits and requests correctly, they wouldn't, you know, the scheduler is really good at making sure things don't interfere if you ask for the right things out of the scheduler. But because you're not asking for the right things, you're getting unintended consequences. And so you're forced into this world of having to do these very nitty gritty details because you haven't done the, like, like it's like going into a fight without being, in, being out of shape. Like you're not gonna do well if you don't do the basics. If you don't do your push-ups and sit-ups and you're out of breath, you're not gonna do well in the fight. Well, same thing. If you don't do the work on resource allocation, which I get it, it's a pain, no one wants to do it manually no one wants to do it but if you don't do that work you're going to end up with downstream consequences right makes sense and i guess in general like it has been a major challenge setting requests and resource limits because if you have a lot of applications i think before before 
Kubernetes, at least I feel like coming also from the place where we were deploying just on virtual machines somewhere on premises at our customers. I, I've seen many uh, organizations that haven't been measuring how much CPU memory their applications use until, you know, like uh, a specific percentage. So now suddenly everyone needs to figure this out and, uh, and know exactly how to do this in the best possible way. And that's, I feel like, where the power of such tools can come in, where you could have, where there are people who have been working with it focused uh, every single day on figuring out how can I most efficiently uh, optimize the resources based on the data I collect from how your applications behave. So you as an engineer don't need to think about that. And at some point I can imagine that it can be scary to kind of uh, let let a a tool do these adjustments for you. I can imagine that this functionality can actually be scary for some some companies. It is a psychological barrier. A lot of folks say, give us the recommendations. We'll put it into the Git repo. We'll take it through testing. And the the way that you combat the the paranoia is by making changes frequently and all of the time so that you learn to trust the system. It's just like releasing code, guys. Remember, people were scared of releasing code, so they'd only do it once a month. It's counterintuitive. You release code once a month, everything is going to break every month, every release, right? But if you release code 30 times a day, it's not so scary anymore, right? Right. Same thing. You make Mm. these adjustments all the time. You learn how to deal with it operationally. Your SRE teams figure it out and your your DevOps engineers figure it out. Totally. I want to take the opportunity to ask about the whole Gen AI piece uh, with Cast AI overall. And, you know, Getting into the engineering pieces, I mean, whatever questions you can't answer, right? <laughs> like, are, are you are you creating your own data models? Are you using data models that already exist from, you know, open AI? Like, how is this all kind of configured from an engineering perspective? Yeah. So in general, um, we are not a company that relies heavily on large language models. Mm-hmm. So we were doing this before uh, the chat GPT boom and all of this noise created. So we have a, our machine learning team uses more traditional models that are still really good to work with for certain problem sets. So I'll give you a couple of examples, right? So when we need to do kind of a seasonality analysis, there are really good time series models that do a great job at a fraction of the cost. We don't even have to train them on GPUs for them to be effective because of the number of data points that we use. So like seasonality was one example that I gave previously, and it's a great example. We also have like a, I'll give you an example of a model that's fairly expensive to train. Um, we have a spot interrupt prediction model. So like when you have a spot node in AWS or Google or Azure, you have two minutes to get out of that node cleanly before the node is taken away from you. So that's not enough time for most workloads, right? It just, so that's only why a small percentage, like under 10% of customers in AWS actually use spot instance capacity, which is a shame because it's such a great discount vehicle. So we created this tech that basically learns from the reactions of each one of the clouds individually to predict with 30 minutes notice instead of two minutes notice or 30 seconds in the case of Google. That's a complicated model because we're ingesting every customer's data points every 15 seconds to continuously train the model based on market changes. So there's lots of feature engineering that we do, but it is a much more traditional model. Like it, it's not 
large language isn't required to create that prediction. Uh, we use, we do use it. So all large language models are based on this transformers pattern that Google released several years back. That's actually what OpenAI, that's the, the innovation for OpenAI came from Google, actually. You guys probably know this. But Transformers comes in many different styles, right? And one of them is a time series transformer. So there, there's a model called temporal transfusion, uh, temper, temporal transfusion uh, model. Sorry, I'll get you guys the exact name. We can put it in the show notes. And that one is based on similar tech to the large language models, but it's focused on time series analysis. So the idea is, is that we can predict events into the future based on historical data patterns. And that has been really promising because now all of a sudden for a legacy workload, let's say you have a Spring Boot application that takes 15 minutes to start up because of cache. Okay, you can give it 15 minutes and you're not going to feel the downtime because we will move that workload way before the interruption actually occurs. So there is one place where we're using large language and we can talk about it. And I'll, I'll even give you guys a bit of a sneak peek, but the traditional algorithms we built have not used all of those kind of buzzy uh, models that have been, uh, been uh, highly hyped in the world so far. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, no, I love to see it. Okay. Let me, let me, let me do a quick uh, screen share for you and then sure. Uh, Michael or Christina, do you guys want to take a, a screenshot? We'll give you guys the exclusive on this. Totally. I, yeah, not, that would be know, great, yeah. We're not even going to release this at KubeCon. We're going um, to actually hold this until beta is finished. So this is a large language model that we call it the Cast AI chatbot. And it is a model that is designed to answer questions about your Kubernetes cluster and the cost of those clusters. So... I'll, like, And what it's supposed to do, it is supposed to project the data that it releases into a visualization. It's not doing a great job of graphing just yet. Like, I'm sure we can find a bar chart that, that is a little bit. Yeah, this is, this is a visualization. So my question was, what is the cost of spot nodes over the last five days for DevMaster? Please provide the data. And so it got the data from the... From, from the cost uh, engine. And then it actually then did another query to the large language model under the covers, which was, how should I best represent this in a graphical format? Got We got an answer back from the model and we then used our own graphing library to use its recommendation for the graph. I asked the guys if we could get the model to write the code and they were completely freaked out and said, no. So we're not actually doing code inference here, but that would have been a cool thing. Like, hey, like let's just have the model write the code in uh, JavaScript to to actually do the visualization. So you can see that we can ask all kinds of interesting questions, and we do this without shipping. So we use uh, ChatGPT four as the model commercially. We pay OpenAI for it, mm -hmm. but we do it without shipping any, not one byte of customer data goes over to open AI. That's, That's awesome. the trick here. That's the trick is how do we do this without exposing our customer data into a kind of a public, you know, we're not sure if it's evil or not environment that can potentially exploit the data. And you know what is, is uh, sticking out to me randomly here. There is a typo. Uh, if you go up here, 
there was a typo in cluster when you asked about cluster and it still picked it up nonetheless, which is interesting. I know that's what it's supposed to do, but I, I just, I wanted to point that out for everybody just cause it's really cool in my opinion. I don't know. Yeah. Like we can, we, let's go like, let's what's, what's a good question to ask? Like uh, how many deployments, um, well, let, let's ask about pods. How many uh, pods in total ran yesterday? Please provide the data. I don't know if this is this going to this might be a total demo fail, but we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see what the answer is. At um, least you were polite when you were talking to. <laughs> I, so the the number of pods that ran yesterday four hundred and forty eight, right? Nice. Um, cool. It doesn't know about um kills yet. So we have to educate the large, this is the next part, which we can talk about if we have any time left, but how do we teach the models about our environment that's unique to us? Like there is some post-training that needs to occur. Um, and we can talk about it either in another chat or we can talk about it today, but that, that's really the challenging part is giving um, the AI engine enough context to be able to answer these questions with confidence. Yeah, and then especially with, I think it's 1.28, where the whole idea, where it's in beta right now, where swapping will now work in a Kubernetes cluster. So then there's going to be that piece of it to kind of fit in like, hey, are you enabling this? Are you not? If not, how many pods can you run? How many can you not? Yeah, so it's it's, it's going to be an interesting thing. You're talking about swap from memory? From memory, yeah. 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 I don't know, guys. What are, what are your thoughts on that? I think that's a, I don't know. I'm not convinced. From a general perspective like we've been using swap for so long now like i don't think it's a huge deal but i am curious of how it's going to work in kubernetes as a whole um especially considering the memory is going to be coming from the worker nodes and that's it's yeah it, it's gonna it's gonna make some curious uh interesting cases from a resource optimization perspective i am curious to see how it's going to work as a whole christina what do you think yeah, I haven't, uh, I guess I would agree with you on that, that I would need to see like uh, how it would, uh, what will the actual use cases right. be for that. I haven't, haven't looked much into that, into mm -hmm. that functionality yet. Christina, my concern is, is that people get pretty sloppy with their yeah. planning and they start mm -hmm. using swap as if it's memory. And then you mm -hmm. start, you move the bottleneck to IO when you could have just yeah. avoided the sloppiness to begin with, right? I, it's just, I feel like it's enforcing, there are probably some use cases that really need swap, I get it. But like, why can't we do that in the application itself? Like, why can't right. you be deliberate about the memory you use? Right. Yeah, that's a great yeah. place to start, I think, application, <laughs> to start right. actually looking into the applications itself, which often become a bottleneck. Yeah, I think we're going to see particular cases for pods because I like, for example, right, like on my Mac right now, swap is turned on, which is awesome, right, because I can get away with using a 16 gig Mac or a 32 gig, whatever, versus having to upgrade. So it makes sense from I feel like a user perspective like that um, or just on a general server perspective again we've had page files for years in windows right and it's it's saved a lot of people um especially but the, the the thing to point out though is that when we used a lot of page files we then had to upgrade the memory right like we knew that we knew okay we have to upgrade now it's using a lot of page files 
But to your point, Leon, a lot of people are going to see that and be like, yeah, it's all right. Don't worry about it. And before you know it, you're going to have yet another bottleneck except on the hard drive side. So yeah, it's going to be interesting. I'm, I'm, it just came out very recently. So I'm assuming there aren't too many production level use cases, but I am curious to see uh, when those things bork, how it's going to bork and well, why it's going to bork. And, and Michael, like to your point, like on your computer, what's the use case? I want to open Visual Studio. I'm in the middle of working on something. Oh, I got to join the Zoom call. I don't want to shut down that application. So let right. that swap out, right? That's a that's a multitasking use case, which is a little bit different than server-side workloads. Right. And then this is my prediction. I think it's going to become a cost problem because when you start swapping to disk, you're going to say, oh, my disks are too slow. I need more IOPS. I'm going to start provisioning nodes with NVMe drives or SSDs to compensate. And now you're going to be paying a whole bunch of money for so I think it's caveat emptor for 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 listeners. Like, just be very very careful with that. I would have loved to have been in that room when that decision was made on the swap. I bet you it was a pretty <laughs> vicious debate on the on the K8's uh, team. Well, we'll certainly find out <laughs> who was right. There may have well, been a GitHub issue for that where you could add add your concerns. I think <laughs> for sure, exactly. Yeah, they use this very strict RFC process, so I'm sure there was like a, a pretty good documented trail of concerns. Right. Well, wrapping up here, Leon, I'd like to give you the, well, we'd like to give you the opportunity to uh, plug away anything you'd like. So if there are any particular blogs or videos or, you know, anything that's come out recently, if you'd like to talk about them, feel free and we'll put them in the show notes. Yeah. So I think I mentioned the two big capabilities we're releasing. I'm not going like, to, we're not going to talk about it again, but for folks, like if we're, if this is coming out after, hopefully if it comes out before KubeCon, please come visit us. We'd love to talk to you in person. We're going to have a big presence there. We'll also have a big presence at AWS reInvent. Uh, but yeah, we're really excited about KubeCon. We're really excited about reInvent and the shows have been absolutely fantastic. And um, I just stay tuned for some of the cool stuff we're going to be releasing. What I will tell you guys is the velocity of innovation has picked up as the teams are getting more comfortable with delivery and the team size has grown our cast, we're just cranking much more quickly. And I'm just super excited. Like part of it is like my journey, but part of it is the team's journey that I'm just kind of like watching in amazement as to how well they're delivering on our capabilities. So that's, that's kind of my, my spiel. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. And thank you so much for joining us today. And for everybody listening, uh, depending on when this is coming out, I think this might be coming out right in the middle of KubeCon. So feel free to swing by uh, the, the cast booth. I think that'd be really cool. I know I'll be doing that to say hello to everybody. Well, thank you so much for being on. Really appreciate it. And we'll see you again next time. Thanks, guys. Thanks, everyone.